Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario Premier Doug Ford set to announce the easing of COVID restrictions today, but uh, we're not out of the woods just yet. Are we in any position to even start reopening? We'll discuss that. Long-awaited housing summit took place yesterday with funding to help municipalities cut red tape. Will this new funding help speed up the development process? And Canada's annual inflation rate is the highest it's been in 30 years. Frank Stronach, the founder of Magna International, joins us to discuss the concerns and the impact and maybe some possible solutions. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, let's focus on on what the Premier may or may not say. And as I say, the anticipation and the the, the intel that we're getting from our global news folks uh, at Queen's Park is that uh, he's going to announce some sort of a phased-in reopening. You know, bars, restaurants, uh, who knows what else. Gyms, I guess, is going to be in there. But there's a lot of trepidation about this. Earlier in the week, you may recall on the program here, uh, we, we talked to Dr. Kieran Moore, who is Ontario's chief medical officer. And, and I asked him at that time about reopening because he, Dr. Moore, that is, has always said, well, it's going to be based on the medical evidence that's there. Uh, and he says, uh, you know, the intensive care units are still increasing but at a slower pace. And, and uh, we asked him at that, I said, so does that justify what's going on? Are you are you confident that maybe we can move forward with, with some of these reopenings? Here's what the doctor had to say. I'm starting to have more hope and cautious optimism. For the first time in several weeks, the number of hospitalizations and cases in the intensive care unit is increasing at a slower pace. The severity of Omicron, coupled with the protection offered by vaccines, has meant that the length of stay for hospitalizations is now five days compared to nine days for the Delta variant. But increasing nonetheless. Not as fast as, as the good doctor said, but still increasing. Uh, so a number of the medical experts are, uh, are waving the caution flag at this stage and say, I'm not so sure we're ready to do this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Tara Moriarty, who is the head of infectious disease at the research laboratory at uh, the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, you're, you're most welcome, and thank you for having me on, Bill. Listen, Doctor, I know you want to see this thing over with. I want to see oh, this yeah. thing over with. I want to be able to go to a theater, a live yeah. production of something. We all want this to end. But oh, uh, I've got some concerns about this, and I know you certainly do. I've been watching your Twitter yeah. feed over the last uh, few hours. Uh, I, I'll ask you the basic question. Is Ontario ready to start reopening? Um, at this point? Yeah. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, I, I, I actually, so first of all, we're, we're still only testing, um, people who are symptomatic in high priority groups. I don't think most Ontarians or Canadians understand that Canada is the only OECD country, high or middle, middle income country in the world that is restricting testing to, uh, symptomatic high priority people. We have, very little idea of what's actually happening. We can't um, we can't estimate reproduction numbers right now in Ontario or in much of the country. So you know what I would say is yes, of course we we will need to um, you know phase in different steps of reopening things. But I think absolutely the first thing you have to have going is that you need to have uh, testing working for people who are trying to access it in the general population. Um, you need to see that, you know, that, that those numbers are coming down to, you know, what we saw at the end of November at best, right? When, mm-hmm. when we still had some chance of, of controlling the current Omicron surge. And I think what a lot of Ontario, people in Ontario don't realize is that Ontario actually has the lowest vaccination rates for people 70 and older of every region in this country except Nunavut and New Brunswick. We are probably the least prepared province to reopen in terms of future deaths and hospitalizations and it's absolutely premature. There, To do this there are many steps. I think we also have to see what happens when schools reopen. We need to look at what happens with cases. We need to try to slow this down so that we can get medications like Paxlovid into the country so that we can prevent some mm-hmm. of those hospitalizations so that we can get older people vaccinated, get people boosted because boosters are making a really big difference right now in terms of the future deaths and hospitalizations that we can expect to see. But I don't think we're ready. I think that having a plan is a great idea. 
Um, but I, I think that there are a bunch of steps that have to be taken and evidence or data that um, um, uh, sort of, you know, thresholds that we have to meet before we well let me ask you about that steps. if i could doctor let's let's go yeah. like, i mean that's right into your wheelhouse i mean with the work you do uh with infectious diseases you need you need data i mean <laughs> you need numbers Absolutely. uh and and i was shocked and i remember having a discussion with dr peter uni about this after they made the announcement that they were going to as you say uh not do as much testing and only focus on on a certain yeah. group of people we we knew even in the best of times back in those days, doctor, that look at the numbers they're presenting us are probably not accurate because there's a lot of people that just don't report this. So it may be even double or more than that. Now we're yeah. even focusing it less. So how can we make conscious decisions and practical decisions when we don't have the data that we just we were told that we had to have to be able to make these decisions? I really don't think we can right now. So one of the things that I do is I, I follow, I, I look very closely at deaths, and I think that even our estimates of, of the upper level of the number of infections that likely happened after December 18th are underestimates right now. Um, I think that, I don't think we know unless we have more testing happening. And that's not apparently going to happen. I mean, we just seem to be going along here. I, I, and again, I'll reiterate. I want, I want to see this thing end too, and I'd like to see us open up again. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, you know what I feel like, Doctor? I feel like the Charlie Brown cartoon. I mean, how many more times are we going to try to kick the football, knowing that Lucy's going to pull it away and we're going to fall right in our backs? We've gone through yeah. this how many times now, where they said, "Okay, we're going to start the plan," and they have to pull back after a few weeks because the numbers start to go haywire again. Yeah, exactly. And with Omicron. They're going to go haywire very, very, very fast because it spreads so quickly. So we can't, um, we're already at, at an incredibly high hospitalization rate. Um, if we start seeing a lot more spread again, that will go higher. Uh, we just, we are in no position right now, especially with Omicron because of how fast it moves. We are in no position. We must be cautious. We We are in no position to just, you know, try things and see if they're going to work or not. We have to go slowly um, because Omicron is faster than us, right? It's faster than we can react. And it's really crucial that, that we go as slowly as possible. Um, and I think that prioritizing reopening of schools is important. Um, making them as safe as possible is incredibly important. But we But we need to prioritize that first. Um, and we need to know where we are with case numbers. Even if our testing is not quite enough under normal conditions, we still need to be testing the general population. We know this is a protocol in place. And I guess one of the frustrations I've heard, and, and I'm, I'm feeling, I'm sensing it too, is that you know, p- putting rules in place are no good at all if you don't enforce them or ha- ensure that yeah. people do. You know, when it comes to face masking, for instance, I mean, a lot of people have just plain become lax about that now, or they wear, you know, and their nose is not covered, et cetera, et cetera, and the vaccination rates. And as you say, I mean, I know the premier is going to get up there and probably again talk about how great the vaccination rates here. But you look at this, and I've talked to other people in, in your field as well, that are looking at this in a much more macro picture as opposed to just what's yeah. happening here. And yeah. and we are falling behind, and we're not where we should be. So if you want to look at vaccination as the best possible defense in that shield, uh, that shield's not in place yet. And and I, no, I'm concerned. Not. I'm I'm not concerned. That, you know that, that all of a sudden people are going to get rushed in. But you know when Dr. Moore says, you know ICU admissions are still up. They're just not going up as fast. Well, the fact yeah. that they're going up should be concerning. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're not even coming down yet. I I, I don't. Anyway, I, I they're not so you know perhaps if they had fallen down to the levels that we saw, you know a month and a half ago, then we might be able to have this conversation. But we haven't even reached the peak. The the stories that we're hearing from Queens Park is that this plan that the premier is apparently going to announce uh, is is not going to go into effect. We're told until the end of this month. So I mean that gives us ten days. Uh, I guess that's some sense of consolation that maybe we can start to see some decline in those numbers. Uh, but that's not going to happen as a doctor unless there's a strategy in place for us for, to, to really attack these numbers. Yeah, no, I don't think there's, I don't think we have um, any kind of visibility on what is happening in a way that, that allows us to act in a timely fashion unless we are testing the general population, um, unless we have some kind of surveillance going on so that we have a sense of where we are. 
Um, we know that hospitalizations follow cases by about two weeks, ICU follows by about three weeks, deaths by about four weeks. If we don't have those early indicators of what might be happening, and if we're only reacting to hospitalizations, Omicron spreads so fast um, that uh, we can end up in a severe crisis. And what I would point out right now, simply based on the number of infections we think will will happen by the time this this current wave falls, so by the at the end of February, thirty percent of the the Ontario population will probably have been infected. That still leaves seventy percent of the population that hasn't been infected. And if that 30% is infected, we're looking at more deaths than in all of wave one that are baked in right now. And, well, and there's we some... need to slow it down to prevent that from happening. And, and you know, the COVID pill that they talked about and is, is a great yeah. story. Uh, but again, you know, your colleagues have told us, look, it's not a magic bullet. It's not going to prevent COVID. It will, it will diminish the symptoms uh, and, and the causation once in your body, once you've got it, but it's not going to stop yeah. you from getting it. Uh, there are to. other protocols that you've talked about that have been developed for treating people that have COVID in hospitals. But we heard the story at Hamilton from Hamilton Health Sciences right now in Hamilton General Hospital that they don't have the uh, the, the drugs uh, that for no. about the last couple of weeks now. There's a certain drug, yeah. and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, uh, tocilumab or whatever, yeah. that suppresses the yeah. overreaction. They can't get access to it. Yeah. And then, and of course, we don't. No. We know that there aren't enough doses of the COVID pill yet. Uh, no. It doesn't look like we've got our defenses ready. No, and, and you know exactly. We if we don't have enough right now of you know the major medication that is helpful in preventing COVID hospitalizations and severe outcomes and deaths, we don't have enough in Ontario right now, and we are still going to see more hospitalizations. And we've still got to come down, you know, the back end of this wave, which is going to be as bigger, bigger than the front end. We don't have those things in place. We uh, you know, in some ways, what I want people to understand is, you know, Paxlovid has been approved in Canada. Paxlovid can make a difference, but you have to have it within five days of developing symptoms. So you need testing to work and testing mm-hmm. to be available to people so that Paxlovid can be given once we have enough of it in the country. I think what people need to think about this, like, it's like the first wave, right, where we really, we need to sew things down and we need, and it's like we did before vaccines were available. We all knew that we needed to slow things down, allow as few people as possible to be infected, so that the things that would help prevent the hospitalizations and deaths and, and everything else would be available for Canadians. And it's, you know, I mean, even just from the the you know the economic point of view, I mean the the future, you know the the. So current estimates right now of the cost of hospitalization um, related to related to COVID in Canada are very high. And we're looking at, you know, potentially $5 billion in hospitalization costs alone in Ontario if we don't control this. I, and from an economic standpoint, I, I get the economic standpoint. God knows I've had enough discussions with small businesses and I'm totally sympathetic yeah. oh, to, to the, to the, you know, the, problems they're facing but if, if in fact he says okay as of january 31st we can open the restaurants i'm just talking in the hypothetical now uh, yeah. that means that these restaurant owners have to get on the phone right now and start ordering supplies so you know you yeah. open the doors you have to have food to serve them uh they're gonna have to get on the phone and see if any of the employees that are not working right now are willing to come back and we've already found that a lot of them won't do that uh, so yeah. there's a lot at stake here and if, you know if they have to do all of that again, and then ten, fifteen, twenty days from now have to say, "Well, I guess we got to shut things yeah, down again." Exactly. I, and, I, here's, and here's the thing I got, and, and I because I, I I know people are all going to say, "Oh, you just you know you just it, you're being a doomsayer." We've already gone through this where we've had yeah. to backtrack oh, on no, these sorts this of is, things. This is we all right. Know let's now. Let, let me ask you something, Doctor. I know our time mm-hmm. is tight here, and this is such an important conversation. Uh, when you and I finish our conversation here, if your phone rings ten seconds later and it's the premier. Saying, uh, hey, doctor, I just heard you talking to Kelly. Uh, what would you advise me to do today? I'm going to get in front of that podium in about two hours there. Yep. What should I tell the people of Ontario and what should I be announcing? What, what would your advice be? So right now, absolutely no decisions and no announcements made about reopening unless you have testing open to the general population. And we know that cases are actually uh, coming down in the general population you, you can't even consider anything until that is happening, until we've been watching it for a week or two to see what's happening. 
And then we also need to wait and see what happens when schools reopen. We need to see what the effect of that is. And at every step, and I am positive that Dr. Moore advocates for this as well, at every step, we make a change, we wait, we watch for a couple of weeks, we see what happens. If things are good, then we make another change. And that's absolutely what we have to do, or we are looking at, you know, more deaths in Ontario to come than in the entire epidemic to date. And that's just deaths. So I, you know, the the, the caution is absolutely essential and um I think you can't even talk about this until we know that testing is working again. And that's one of the frustrations I feel when politicians, it's not just Doug Ford, but other politicians uh, say, okay, here's phase one and uh, in a, such and such a date, we'll begin to phase two. How do they know that? Because they don't know what the numbers are going to be until they do some yeah, assessment. You need metrics. And, yeah. and that's that's up to our behavior, isn't it? That's not on the politicians. Yeah. That up, that's up to us. Yeah. What exactly. we do or don't do is going to determine whether or not those numbers go down. Yeah. and I And I think people will understand a bit better very sadly, I think people will understand the, the seriousness of this as the deaths really start coming in and are being reported. There are going to be a lot in Ontario in the next few weeks. And I think people will understand better at that point. Because I think a lot of people don't think it's that serious. A lot of people still think it's yeah. mild, that they'll be fine. I think people will also understand better in a few weeks. So from a strategic point of view, I think the Premier is also better positioned to talk about these things in a few weeks once people understand um, exactly what the impact of Omicron is and why you might want to go slowly. Well, we'll see what the Premier's got to say a couple hours from now. A a pleasure to have you on the program today, Doctor. Thank you so much for the great work that you're doing as uh, we battle this pandemic. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. It was a wonderful conversation and thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Tara Moriarty, who is the head of infectious disease research laboratory at uh, the University of Toronto. Uh, one of those folks on the front line determining exactly what's happening and how we should respond to it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So we talked about uh, some weeks ago, the Ford government announced that they were going to set a housing task force to, uh, to deal with the, well, it's a crisis, quite frankly, housing affordability and so many other things. And uh, they had their, their first meeting officially. I mean, they're supposed to have done this a while ago, but the COVID outbreak and some shutdowns uh, delayed things a little bit. Although I know some of the members actually were doing some Zoom meetings. But uh, yesterday, they I guess their, full first, their first full-bore meeting on this, and the Premier uh, was there. He says it's going to take province-wide collaboration to tackle the housing crisis and boost housing supply. The uh, Premier s- uh, spoke yesterday to all of the folks involved in this at the start of this virtual housing summit with Ontario municipalities and says he's hopeful this is going to be productive. As is often the case, while the solutions may seem obvious, implementing them takes a lot of hard work and determination. Uh, And collaboration and open-mindedness. I mean, there's a whole lot of things we could list here. I'm not so sure that uh, they're going to find those uh, to the degree that they need to. But uh, I know some of the members of the committee are in earnest about this. Tim Hudak was on that committee. Tim was on the program earlier this week. Uh, And uh, others have been been vocal about exactly what needs to be done here. And they're going to try... I guess, to get on the same page and, and come back with some recommendations for the government. Uh, I want to bring Michael uh, Collins-Williams into the conversation. Michael, of course, is the chief executive officer of the West End Home Builders Association, who has been uh, uh, in the middle of the debate and discussion that's going on here in this area about housing affordability and housing stock, etc. Michael, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Good morning, Bill. Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. They, they finally got together. They talked about a few things yesterday. Uh, now, I, it's not going to happen in a day. It's probably not going to happen in two or three meetings. This is a very complex issue. But with the uh, the conference coming in, with this, this uh, task force that's being implemented now by the province, uh, Michael, are you hopeful that they're going to, at least, first of all, identify the key issues and find some, some possible solutions? I'm, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, you know, there's no silver bullet to uh, the housing crisis. It's a complex of issues that is really going to require a collaboration with all three levels of government with the residential construction uh, sector and and we're hopeful that we can work together to tackle the barriers that are making it more expensive and difficult to bring new housing supply to the market so you know the i, I think the mayors uh and and the premier and uh the minister of municipal affairs and housing uh, steve clark are, are saying the right things, the the early indications around wanting to work together collaboratively are, are certainly positive. 
and I'm cautiously optimistic that the housing um, affordability task force that was struck just before the Christmas break uh, will have a strong and robust set of recommendations uh, for the provincial government to, to move forward and implement in, in the weeks and months ahead. I know that one of the folks that spoke at the meeting yesterday was uh, Jeff Lehman. Uh, Jeff is the, the Mayor of Barrie, Ontario, and he's also the chair of the Ontario Big City Mayor's uh, Caucus. Uh, and, and Barrie's suffering through the same sorts of problems that Hamilton is, London is, everybody else. It's a province-wide problem here in Ontario, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he thanked the Premier yesterday, as you know, uh, and said, you know, this is uh, great that, you know, they're going to talk about zoning changes and that's going to filter down to the municipal level and the province is going to try to help with that. Uh, but as, uh, as Mayor Lehman said, that's that's not the answer. That's that's going to be a piece of the puzzle. But there's a lot more. This is a very complex issue. And, and a stroke of a pen or a, a new bylaw or something isn't going to make this problem go away, is it, Michael? I think uh, the Mayor Barry said the right things. And, and I think that people uh, and your listeners should be cautious that this, this is not going to be solved overnight. Uh, it's taken us over a decade to sort of get in the mess that we find ourselves in, in terms of housing of all types and tenures, uh, frankly, being out of reach for uh, for new Canadians, for young people just trying to get into the housing markets. Um, you know, there just is not enough supply in the face of massive population growth. And, and Bill, you and I have talked about this a little bit before, but I could just zoom out for a moment. Um, you know, Canada has a newly elected uh, federal government that has increased immigration targets uh, as part of their post-pandemic recovery. And an absolutely wild statistic I heard the other day was that last year in 2021, Canada's population increased by over 400,000. And that number for the first time since 1867, uh, since Confederation actually exceeded the population growth of the United States, a country nine times our size. And the immigration targets for 2022 and 2023 are even higher than 2021. And most of this new population growth is going to two regions in our country. It's going to Vancouver, and it's going to the region that we find ourselves in, the, the Golden Horseshoe. Zooming in a little forward to the province of Ontario, uh, between 2010 and 2015, our population grew by about 600,000. That accelerated to a million between 2015 and 2020. So we know that our population is growing at a very rapid rate uh, and the housing system has not been able to respond and build the amount of housing necessary to house this increased population, which is why around 2016, 2017, as I said, this hasn't happened overnight. That's when the housing crisis really started to, I'll say, detach from economic realities and, and sort of respond to this massive increase in demand through population growth. And if we zoom in a little further, just to the area that we find ourselves in, the, uh, the greater Golden Horseshoe, um, our population is around 10 million today. It is forecasted in the growth plan to increase to about 15 million by 2051. That's the equivalent of the entire population of greater Montreal moving here. And I'm a little cautious about those forecasts because there's a lot of new academic research and discussion suggesting that these population forecasts might be wrong and that we might actually be underestimating the amount of growth because the forecasts that were done for the growth plan were done before the immigration targets were increased. So Bill, well, we have and, a big that's challenge why, on our hands today and it might get worse. Yeah, and which is why I know in the Hamilton situation, because I know you've been deeply involved in the debate about uh, urban boundary expansion or potential urban boundary expansion and, and infill, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it must have been very disheartening to hear a number of the councillors around the table last November when they were having that debate suggesting, yeah, they don't believe the numbers either. They think they're too high. I, I don't know where these guys have had their heads stuck in the sand over the last little while because the numbers are real. Uh, and, and one of them, I think, even suggested, okay, we should limit immigration. That would be a dumb thing to do. Uh, we've relied on this country for immigration to, for the workforce since we were confederated back in 1867. And to, and to, to turn that tap off uh, would be problematic. I mean, these are people that are coming in here, they're going to fill these jobs, they're going to bring their expertise with them. It's it's how we grew as a country, and we need to continue to do that. But the bottom line here, Mike, listen, we've got to put a roof over their head when they come here. I think it's it's a challenge that we face, and, and you know, we're not responding to the Canadian dream. If we are welcoming the best and the brightest from around the world, and we're not able to uh, provide that roof over the head, 
or, or people or their families arrive here. And, you know, after a few years of working hard, they, they sort of realize that they just they can't get ahead. Um, I think this is a challenge for new Canadians. This is a challenge for young Canadians. I think more and more young Canadians are delaying marriage, delaying having kids. Uh, there are significant societal issues and problems that arise from people being able to un- uh, not be able to attain the type of housing they're looking for. And this is also sort of this musical chairs effect that we're seeing, not just in Hamilton, because Hamilton's not an island onto itself. Across the greater Golden Horseshoe, across the GTA, that there is a bit of an exodus of families happening right now. They're leaving Toronto. This is part of why housing prices are going up in Hamilton, because you have young families, perhaps with some more resources, coming into Hamilton, bidding up the cost of housing. And this is displacing Hamiltonians who are moving down the QEW or down the 403 to St. Catharines or to Paris, Ontario. Um, the head of the Canadian Real Estate Association um, just a week or so ago, sort of as a, a sum up to the year 2021 coming into 2022, said that right now there are fewer homes for sale in Canada than at any point since they've started uh, collecting data. So we're not building enough new housing. And because the system is so jammed up, a lot of people are reluctant to put their homes up for sale because they don't know where they're going to be able to move to next. So we're in a real crunch where, where things are jammed up in the housing system. And this is why I'm encouraged that there was a housing summit yesterday with the premier, the minister, and the mayors. Um, I'm encouraged that there is a housing affordability task force um, because quite frankly, though, I, I'm not sure whether municipalities are going to be able to do this on their own because of the uh, local politics involved in any decision around new housing. Quite frankly, we need provincial intervention and we need assertive provincial intervention. Well, and I've seen this happen when I was on council a long, long time ago, and you've seen this, I don't know how many times, and it's not just a Hamilton problem. I've, I've talked to you know, politicians in Barrie, in London, and it's the same situation. You know, if you say, okay, here's the way we're going to do this, guys. We need a variety of housing. Uh, we're going to build apartments. Uh, we're going to offer some incentives because we need rental properties. Oh, that's a good idea. That's going to be part of the solution. We get that. As soon as you go before a community and say, oh, by the way, we're going to build a high rise here. We're going to build a, uh, we're going to allow for triplexes here. You get a big pushback from the neighborhood and say, we don't want that stuff around here. We're the taxpayers. We own the property around here. And there's a big fight uh, invariably. And, of course, the, the counselor of whatever ward that is and whatever city it is, is between a rock and a hard place. Do I do what I think is the right thing or do I face the angry mob of people that don't want this in their community? And as a result, it gets stalled. And and sometimes, you know, some of your members, I guess, just get frustrated and say, what the heck with it then? We'll go someplace else. It's not solving the problem. I don't know that people have got their heads around this, that they're going to have to find some sense of compromise for this thing to work. Bill, that's especially challenging in an election year where those same yeah, councillors are no going kidding. to be uh, facing, uh, facing voters in a few months. So this is where I go back to the provincial intervention piece. And I will give kudos to the city of Hamilton. The planning department right now is looking at opening up um, neighborhood zoning to allow for some more, we call it missing middle housing. Yeah. This is what is sort of between the single detached and the tall towers. Uh, this is semi-detached townhomes, quadplexes, garden suites, laneway suites. Um, this is something the provincial government is also talking about and was one of the recommendations our association made to the Housing Affordability Task Force that across Ontario, from Ottawa to Windsor, from uh, Thunder Bay to Fort Erie, perhaps the provincial government needs to set minimum zoning standards where you cannot have single-family only zoning sort of an exclusionary zoning where you're basically saying to the vast majority of the population because of the cost of housing that these neighborhoods aren't for you because you can't afford to buy into them. Um, We are asking the province to consider allowing up to four stories within all residential neighborhoods and allowing for semis, for triplexes, for quadplexes, perhaps even some low scale four story apartments and, you know, this will change the dynamics of a lot of neighborhoods in Hamilton and beyond, but it's also not going to happen overnight. This is sort of, you know, just like a neighborhood today, you see the house down the road renovating, um, you know, you might have a house down the road a couple of years from now that's going to end up being two homes or, or a town home uh, a block over. But this, 
this is a way of accommodating more population uh, within our existing neighborhoods and quite frankly allowing a diversity of different price points of entry within our existing neighborhoods and given where home prices are today we we need more options not less well and we talked to the minister minister clark about this some months ago and, and we've talked to other stakeholders like yourself and uh, tim hudak from the realtors association and and that's part of it you know rezoning at the municipal level and these sorts of things but as as i know mayor lehman from barry mentioned and and a number of uh, the other stakeholders have mentioned the government's going to have to be open to different ways of doing things too, like rent to own, uh, these sorts of things to get people in there, at least get a foot in the door anyway, and and maybe grow with that sort of thing, Uh, which means the financial institutions, everybody's got to be at the table and everybody has to be open to say, what can we do here? Well, you know, just because we did it this way for the last 25 years doesn't mean that's the way we need to do it going forward. As a matter of fact, as as you've said, Michael, uh, you look at the current numbers here right now, and those numbers dictate that we can't do it the way we've done it for the last 25 years. We need broad systematic change at both the provincial and the local level. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. We can't keep doing things the way that we've done them in the past. We need to expedite and build a lot more housing a lot faster than we ever have before. Uh, and that requires um, a much more efficient planning approval system. That requires taking some of the politics out of planning. And that requires looking at some of the cost levers you know, in, in mid-rise and high-rise, building underground parking is very, very expensive. Perhaps we need to get rid of minimum parking requirements. Um, a large segment of the cost of housing, uh, between 20 and 25%, it's just taxes. Whether it's development charges, whether it's the land transfer tax, the HST at the federal level, the GST, that's another 5% on the cost of every new home. We need to look at the tax system uh, and how much municipalities and senior levels of government are adding to the cost of a, a, a new home. Um, we need to look at our, bu- our building code. Uh, there are innovative solutions that other jurisdictions have. For example, in Ontario, we can only build up to six stories using uh, mass timber wood frame construction. In Europe, just about everywhere, you can go 12 stories. We have one of the largest, most significant forestry sectors here in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, And there is an opportunity to use uh, climate-friendly materials because wood is a form of carbon sequestration, whereas concrete buildings, that uses up a lot of carbon. So there are innovative technologies that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have to look at what other jurisdictions are doing, and we can build better, we can build faster, uh, and we surely can, can reduce some of the costs around the taxes that go into housing. Well, and the collaboration, as you say, has to be multifaceted. There's got to be a lot of stuff going on here. But I mean, we're expecting governments to take the lead here. And I know the private sector is very anxious to play a role in this. And and that's good news. But as we've talked about, you know, the federal and provincial governments kind of got out of the housing business about 20, 25 years ago. Uh, the feds have committed some money to it. But I mean, throwing money at the problem we found is is not the solution. You've got to have a strategy. And I'm hoping that this, this uh, task force that uh, the, the provinces are using right now is going to be a good first step in this to, to develop that strategy. Uh, we can go after the governments for the money later on and say, but you know, it's a lot easier for the government to hand over a check uh, to a, a municipality if they say, "Here's your plan." Boy, that looks pretty good. Yeah, we'd love to partner with you on that. Uh, if but there's a lot of heavy lifting has to go into it before you put the ask in for the finances, isn't there? I think where the checks come in is for that uh, below market affordable housing, uh, and that is a component of the housing system. Uh, and I think the private sector is ready and willing to work with governments to to build mixed income communities. Uh, but quite frankly, we do need some financial assistance there. Uh, but the vast majority of the housing market is is provided through the private market. And I don't think your average uh, Ontarian, your average Hamiltonian, or for your average listener, has a strong desire to uh, live in government-built uh, affordable housing. They're they're looking to be housed through the private sector, um, but things have sort of gotten away from us in the last five years, which is why we need systems change uh, in terms of the financial structures that we talked about, uh, in terms of the planning structures, and. I really do think that we need to look at how can we take some of the politics out of planning, um, because as much as I sometimes get frustrated with local councils, I'm actually very empathetic to the pressures that they are under from their local constituents to um, to oppose housing and to oppose change. Uh, the development industry, the new housing industry, 
we're all about change. We're delivering new housing. Uh, we're creating new communities. Uh, but that is that is change for a lot of people. And a lot of people that live in different neighborhoods, well, they don't want to see change. Um, but that's got to change, uh, quite frankly, going forward with the amount yeah. of population growth. Otherwise, um, this problem is only going to get worse. Michael, I have to leave it here. We're just about out of time. Uh, this is actually a continuation of an ongoing discussion, and I know uh, many more to come as uh, some of these recommendations come out. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, stick with it, and I know we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, have a fantastic day. Stay warm. You too. Take care. Michael Collins-Williams, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association, one of the many stakeholders, and there are many uh, that are going to be involved in this debate uh, going forward. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Cost of living, inflation, these are all words that we're hearing on the news almost on a daily basis, and we're feeling the impact of these things on a daily basis. And uh, the cost of living is rising the fastest pace in over 30 years now. And based on the most recent snapshot of the December data, inflation has been well above the Bank of Canada's targeted rate for the last nine months in a row. Goebbels and Gaviola has been looking at this and has more on what this means for interest rates, but more importantly, what it means for your household budget. The overall cost of living is up 4.8% year over year in December. The biggest drivers of inflation, transportation, shelter, and food. For low-wage workers who may not have the option to work from home, those are the hardest things to cut back on. Now, the pressure is on the Bank of Canada to raise rates to tame inflation. In fact, markets are pricing in a hike in January, although that's not what most economists expect. The central bank has said it would move this spring or summer. Now, regardless of when the bank hikes, inflation watchers warn it might not cool inflation much because the main culprit is global supply chain snarls, which means we may need to factor in this kind of inflation into our household budgets along with higher rates for the foreseeable future. And Gaviola, Global News. The problem is, is and I understand the government's going to try to play a role in this, whether it's going to be interest rates with the Bank of Canada, uh, the supply chain stuff, we got all this stuff, and governments have, and politicians have made some comments about that. Uh, but an op-ed piece in the Toronto Star from a couple of days ago, I think actually points to a much more elementary problem here. The economy just is not working for many Canadians anymore. And according to the, to the op-ed piece, business is largely to blame. Uh, that assertion coming from uh, somebody who knows all about business, uh, who has started a number of businesses very successfully. Uh, Frank Stronach, of course, is the uh, owner of and, and the uh, guy who really started Magna International and uh, is one of many, many successful business enterprises. He's the author of the uh, the op-ed piece that appeared in the Toronto Star. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about that and uh, what we can talk about going forward to try to solve some of these problems. Uh, Frank, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, nice to be on your show, Bill. I'm fascinated by the piece because I know everybody's, it's like the weather. Everybody's got a, a, an idea as to what's going on and why it's going on. Not too many solutions are coming up here. Uh, but Frank, you hit something. Uh, I really hit the nail on the head here when you, you talked about the system itself just doesn't seem to be working. And, you know, the old idea about doing the same thing over and over and expecting you're going to get a different result. Uh, you talk uh, in the piece here about what you call the great divide. Maybe explain that to our listeners. Well, the great divide is that the well-to-do, the rich get richer and the working class, uh, you know, can afford less and less uh, things. The, the, um, the living standards are eroding. When we look back about 30 years ago, um, let's, let's say a regular couple, let's say a young couple, uh, she might be a school teacher, the guy might be a plumber. They could afford a house. It's not feasible anymore. So why, why is it? We, we got to take a look. What, what, what is it? So we have a number of things. I'm, I remember about 40 years ago when the first computers came on the market, you know, we said uh, if you got one of those commuter, uh, computers, you could eliminate a, uh, an office floor and an office building. And now I think there's 200 times more office buildings uh, than it was 40 years ago, right? We have the bureaucracy has, has climbed enorm enormously and inflation, you have inflation when we print monies, right? We're printing monies now. I hope there's enough threes left for other things, right? <laughs> because uh, it's so, so we have a problem. And, and as you articulate in the piece here, it's something I think we we all can see on a daily basis here. The rich are getting richer, the middle class is shrinking, and the poor among us 
as you mentioned, are growing in number, and there are a few opportunities to rise up out of poverty. I mean, you know, the old idea that, you know, hey, I want to do something about this, but boy, the opportunities just aren't there. How did we get to this point, Frank? Because it never used to be that way. There was always this opportunity. I mean, you know, when, I mean, you started Magna International, you were knocking on doors looking for business, and you made that company grow. And I've talked to other entrepreneurs uh, around this country that have done the exact same thing. And you gave people opportunity. You gave them hope. Uh, a lot of people I'm talking to now, and I'm sure you have over the last couple of months, Frank, don't think they have any hope. They're, they're frustrated and they don't see a way out of the, the dilemma they're in. Uh, I'd like to point out, uh, by pointing fingers, you never can solve a problem, right? To a certain extent, we are a little bit to blame for when things uh, don't go too well, right? So, but we got to take a look. Uh, I am, I, I hope to write a, a column in the star every week, right? So the first column I addressed, if the economy doesn't work, nothing else will work. We cannot feed the hungry and we cannot look after the most fragile ones, the elderly people. And that's a, that's a, another capital which, uh, which we are not really focusing on. It, let's say you take a family which lives in Toronto. Uh, let's say the son uh, might find a job in Vancouver. Uh, the daughter might find a job in Ottawa. It used to be that the grandparents looked after the grandchildren and the grandchildren did look after the parents. All yep. those things are disappearing. It's going to be more complicated. There are going to be a, a lot of lonely people up there, you know, uh, which uh, get sicknesses and, and, you know. So we we got to take a look where are our problems and logically talk about it. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but go back on the economy. Uh, we got to understand the economy is driven by three forces. Smart managers, hardworking employees, and investors. All three have a right to the outcome, which is profits. The message I want to get across is workers have a moral right on some of the profits to help to generate. We don't talk about that. You don't read it in a magazine. You don't, we don't talk about it. But that's fundamental, right? Naturally, the environment is also very important. We cannot neglect that. So uh, uh, I've been, in a way, uh, I've been fortunate that, uh, or unfortunate that I basically witnessed everything. I, I was born in Austria. I, uh, I, um, I was a, a teenager or, or uh, 10 years old, and, and I, I could understand how how crazy that system was, you know. Uh, and then we were occupied by the Russians, uh, you know. I could see that the communistic system doesn't work either, right? And mm -hmm. then I, I, I wanted to see the world. I come from a working-class background. I applied for a visa to South Africa, Australia, the United States, and Canada. And I've always said the Canadian bureaucracy is the best. They came forward with the visa first. So I wound up in Canada. Didn't know anybody at 200 bucks. Didn't take me long. The 200 dollars didn't last too long. I arrived in Quebec City. The immigration officer said, "Do you know anybody in Canada?" I said, "No." Well, then go to Montreal. So I, uh, I hopped in a train and went to Montreal. And uh, uh, my English was not too bad. So I, uh, I knew that you had to look around rooms for uh, to lease or for rent. So I, when I got out of the train station, uh, I started to walk and look for rooms. Uh, after maybe a couple of hours, I found the thing here. I, I, I knocked on the doors a little early on, but I kind of looked a little rough just coming off the boat. So, uh, so but, but you anyway, had opportunities, though, didn't you, Frank? You, you had opportunities, and you'd made the most of those opportunities. I, I had, a, but the most important thing, you got to give tangible hope, huh? Yeah. Let me give an example, right? Uh, over the years, I, I think I became the largest urban landowner maybe in America. I bought a lot of racetracks. So I bought the racetracks where the triple ground is held, right? The Preakness. The racetrack called Pimlico. Yeah. On the one side of Pimlico, you got a middle class. On the back side, you've got the worst, uh, you know, you got so much poverty, it's, it's, you cannot even describe it. 
So I said to my people, I, I want to meet the black neighborhood leaders. And I met him. I saw that band in high school. I said to them, look, <clears throat> if you want to, with your help, I can build you the most modern technical trade school. They were a little skeptical. Two years later, when we opened the school, they had tears in their eyes. I gave hope, right? Because exactly. you cannot, like you cannot make somebody a manager or a foreman or whatever if they got to know the business or they got to have a good understanding. So we taught young black kids how to, how to do business, how to, how to learn technology, et cetera, et cetera. It's hopes. So, there's, and, and as your businesses grew, uh, you, I mean, there's a basic formula, and you're, you're absolutely right. You mentioned this in, in the piece that was in the Star, Frank. Uh, you know, the, the investors, need, they, they have a right to get a return on their investment. They're the ones that are putting money up and saying, hey, I believe in you. Uh, the owner of the business, by the same token, needs uh, has a right to, to the profit. You know, they, they want to grow the business and invest in the business with their blood, sweat, and their tears. But as you mentioned in the piece, uh, the employees, the workers, are also entitled to a decent living. I mean, because, and they may be one of the most important elements of this, because if they have disposable income, they're going to go out and spend that in the community, and that's going to make small businesses grow. So, I mean, it's a, there's a circle of economic life here that seems to be broken. And, and how do we get back to that idea? Well, I hope I have the columns every week. I can't show way how to get back. And uh, Canada is a great country. It's the greatest country. And I've always said over the last two years, the United States is the last country where the free enterprise system maybe has got a chance to survive. But I, uh, the divide's just getting too big there. And we got to watch uh, that our divide in Canada doesn't get this high. And I spend a lot of time in Washington because I created about uh, 30,000 jobs over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And and uh, in, in the United States. So I, I met just about everybody. I remember being in Washington, meeting with the leader of the House, Mitch McConnell, the, the senator from Kentucky. I knew him because yeah. he had some farms there and horses. And I said, Mitch, America did great way the free enterprise. And we must do everything we can to preserve free enterprise. Without free enterprise, we haven't got a free society. But I said, Mitch, free enterprise got a major problem. He said, what do you mean? Well, more and more capital is helped by fewer and fewer. In nature, when a species does not reproduce itself, another species will take over. I said, Mitch, if we fail to make capitalists out of the workers, we haven't got a country. So that's our, that's our dilemma. The socially, I, I come from a working class. My commitment is how can we eliminate poverty? And how can we improve democracy and the living standards? Okay, so, but we have a lot of flaws and we should, uh, I think we should talk constructively about it. And like I said, it won't help, uh, you know, to point fingers. When I, when I run Magna yet, I, I got the workers together and said, let's, let's make one thing clear. No governments can guarantee your jobs. No unions can guarantee your jobs. Not even Magna can guarantee jobs. I said, the one thing I can guarantee that we, that we can work together, look at problems together and solve problems. I said, the only one guarantee is that we can promote products that we can sell. That's the only guarantee we, 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 uh, that's the, the, the best way to guarantee jobs. The one thing we can guarantee that we, I created hotlines. It's bad business if you don't do things right. If you discriminate, if you are, uh, workers got to feel comfortable, right? I can yep, work in exactly. a factory and, and I know if they make a profit or not. If I don't see smiling faces and then I know something is wrong. Well, and, and, you know, you talk about, and I know you're a big believer in social safety net, too, that we have to give people that are, are down on their luck an opportunity. But if you don't have enough people paying into those programs, uh, this is where governments go into debt. I mean, there's supposed to be, a, again, uh, you know, people that, that I know that are working and have good paying jobs uh, are more than happy to pay their fair share in taxes and knowing that it's going to go in and help, you know, produce a, a better community for them. But those paying jobs need to be there and it's got to be a decent income. You had that mindset. I know so many other entrepreneurs that develop their companies with that way, saying, look, at the workers are key. We've got to keep them happy and, and you know, they've got to be paid a decent wage. Uh, 
can we get back to that? Are there, are there people out there right now, Frank, that you've seen that have that same spirit that you did when you were starting all of your I, businesses? I, I think we could get back that way, but it's got to be a, it's got to be an open way, a fair way, you know. Uh, it's uh, but we be able to get back that way, and and hopefully every week there's a different column I can show the way, and uh, yeah, uh, nothing should be taboo. You know, the very key is when we sometimes back, sit back and 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 philosophize or close our eyes and dream it a little, where we say what would be the makeup or the structure of an ideal society? We must, we must think in those terms. We must create building blocks. You know, if we have got no building blocks, how can we ever create an ideal society? So it's very important. So we got we to look at a wide range of things. We got to look at education, our health system, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, what, what do uh, um, sicknesses, uh, uh, viruses play a role? Uh, you know, we, we, there's, there's a lot of problems, which, uh, you know, let's uh, just take Corona, right? The coronavirus yeah. is we got to understand the viruses are basically created via animals. And if we take a look how we keep animals, you know, and what we feed them—it's—it's it's beyond, it's beyond anything, right? Okay, and uh, look, I don't want to knock uh, the pharmaceutical companies. They over the years they've done many, many great things. But when we the the first, maybe the most famous doctor, you know, uh, Hippocrates, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, his saying was, "Let food be your medicine, and medicine your food." We totally ignore. We totally ignore nature. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, natural medications we could take. Uh, we I, I think when it comes down to the Corona thing, yes, we don't talk enough about uh, uh, preventative methods. Preventative yeah, that's exactly methods. the point. Okay. We need to do more about that. Listen, you mentioned that uh, this is actually the first, of, we're hoping, of, of many columns that you're going to put into the star, hopefully on a weekly basis. And as you said at, uh, at the end of your piece, uh, you're going to put forward concrete practical solutions based on seven decades of experience as an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and politician. Uh, and you you put a warning out here, Frank. You say, you may not agree with me all the time, but it's going to provoke discussion. And I think that's what we need at this stage. Uh, really enjoyed the piece. I look forward to your other contributions in the uh, the weeks and months ahead. But uh, I want to thank you also for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation, Frank. Well, great, Bill. And uh, you know, you, if you read the columns, uh, if you got any questions, I'd be very happy to be on your show. Okay. Sure thing. Great. We'll stay in touch. Talk to you again. Okay. Thank you. you. We'll stay in touch. Thanks again. Frank Stronick, of course, the founder of Magda International and now a contributing columnist to uh, the Toronto Star. And this is, well, he's got all the experience in the world when it comes to all those facets that he's talked about. So it's uh, going to be interesting. We'll look forward to some of those discussions down the line. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.